Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of uh, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Laszlo Ander, I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, and we have a special topic and a special guest today. The special topic is indeed the main foreign policy issue of this uh, part of 2022, the extremely difficult situation that has emerged around Ukraine between Russia and the West. But we will work a little bit to define what exactly is the problem uh, which we are facing um, east of the European Union. And the special guest today is Dr. Reinhard Krum from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, who has been uh, with Friedrich Ebert Foundation for a very long time, including in Moscow, uh, but also in Vienna and currently leading the Baltic office of FES. And let me also add that um, he has been also lecturing on East European history with a focus on Russia at the University of Regensburg. Reinhard, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Lars. Thank you very much for the invitation. I have been thinking a lot about the topic as uh, any other newspaper reader in uh, Europe. And I would like to start with a question about the missed opportunities. Because when you witness an escalation like this, a very sharp international conflict like this, which is directly threatening with a military conflict, uh, we are bound to think about the question when, if there was any opportunity to prevent this. When was the last time? Was it at the time when uh, Hillary Clinton was meeting uh, Mr. Lavrov in 2009 or uh, the so-called Minsk agreement, which could have been implemented but wasn't really? Uh, when was the time when um, de-escalation effort failed and things started to go fatally wrong? It is a process, clearly. It's not one event, I would say. Um, if you don't mind, I go back a little bit. In 1992... If not to Catherine the Great, right? <laughs> no, no historic lecture. Don't worry about it. We're not in Regensburg. Um, it's 1992, December. Andrei Kozirev, the former um, Russia foreign minister, or maybe the first one, maybe the first one um, under Yeltsin. He had a speech in, I think it was Copenhagen uh, at the KSCE uh, conference. And he had a speech which was shocking for all the diplomats there. Because he was saying, if you continue what you do, um, if you think we are weak, if you think that uh, we will take a step back and are not interested in international affairs and so on and so forth, you are completely mistaken. He left the stage, he came back and said, no, no, that's not me, but this is what can happen. If you, the West, don't try to work with us, um, but on equal footing. So you could argue that Russia's foreign policy uh, in general is fairly consistent since 1992. Yes, there were some ideas about joining NATO, but not really. The instruments are very unpredictable, as we know, but the, the course of foreign policy was kind of the same. Now, to your question, there were several attempts um, on both sides when things already kind of got sour. For the Russians, the NATO East expansion was always, always difficult to swallow. But the first expansion towards Poland, the Czech Republic, and so on and so forth, the West compensated the NATO-Russia Council, so on and so forth. The second one, um, Latvia, Estonia, the Baltics in general, there was not that much talk about some kind of compensation. This is not my opinion. I'm just pointing out the Russian kind of ideas, reflection. 
Americans. Now, 2009, the then President Medvedev came up with an idea about European security order. And if you look at it now, you will be amazed what's written in there. You know, it's about fundamental principle of security and international relations for everybody. The treaty should guarantee the uniform interpretation and implementation of those principles. Equal rights for all the partners within the OSCE, arms control and reasonable limits on military construction. That was the time when Putin took a break from 2008 mm -hmm. to 2012. Um, the US, uh, NATO and the EU took it seriously, um, kind of. We put it into the OSCE, which Russia also wanted. It's the famous Corfu process. In there, it got buried. <clears throat> there was nothing happening that anymore. So that was an idea. And that coincided with the uh, reset between the US and Russia. The START agreement was signed, the third so there were kind of things going into the right direction, but also, as you remember, in 2008, the war between Georgia and Russia, which put a huge damper um, on any efforts and which made the reset extremely difficult. And then came, and also 2008, the invitation uh, of NATO towards Georgia and Ukraine, which was done by the then U.S. President W. Bush. Bush, he was the initiative that really. And after that, um, I think in general, it kind of went downhill for several reasons, and we will talk about it. So there were opportunities all along, but never anything serious, which made both sides think about it. Okay, let's come together, unfortunately. Indeed, I very much agree that the Georgia milestone is critical in this story, but what is probably even more uh, critical is uh, the very tumultuous uh, period um, in the Ukraine, uh, 2013 and 14, when um, there was a change of the government uh, following the collapse of the attempted association agreement with the European Union, uh, which would have focused on trade, and then uh, culminating in the uh, annexation of uh, the Crimea by Russia. And the Western response was an increasing number of economic sanctions. And ever since we have been living in this period of economic sanctions, I would like you to share a brief assessment of this, especially from the point of view of the capacity to you know, force uh, Russia, Moscow, Putin to a different approach other than military. Yeah, the, the annexation of Crimea, which we will never accept we, I mean the US and the EU, plus the uh, war in around Ukraine, Donbass, which is also unacceptable, is the result of a foreign policy of Russia, which wants to have a say in European security. It wants to be part of a system which implements rules. Um, it feels it's out of it. If I would think, if um, the EU, NATO, and the US don't accept certain Russian foreign policy and security interests, it will be difficult in the future. And I'll come back towards Ukraine. Since the last 20, 30 years, Russia has put a lot of money into its military to reform it. It's not the military we see in 1992. But other countries did that too. For example, the US. So in 2006, there was an analysis which was you know, controversial, but still that possibly the US has nuclear superiority, which is a bad thing for Russia because the counterattack is then impossible. Another thing is the prompt global strike, which is, I don't want to go too much into details, but apologize, but this is something fairly new. It is conventional uh, weaponry which is super fast, hypersonic, 
and can take out even movable nuclear armament. Again, this is not good for strategic stability. So I think it talk negotiations with Russia about uh, strategic stability and so on and so forth is more part of the US. Our part is the more difficult, which is the countries in between. And this is not derogative. This is just a geographical description and also a description that these six countries, I'm talking, of course, of the countries of the uh, uh, Eastern Partnership, are not belonging Uh, mostly at least, to an alliance. Yet Belarus is part of the Eastern NATO, the CSTO. But in general, these are countries who are wondering where to go. Some are very clear towards the EU, Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, and others are not. It's about the future of these countries. And the interesting thing is that this is nothing new. I will recall a thinking of a person, our auditorium probably doesn't know, Mr. Sonnenfeld. He was Kissinger's Kissinger. He okay. has the same roots. He came from Germany. He's Jewish. He had to fled Germany. And he, in 1975, this is uh, KSCE time, Helsinki final act, he says, the most difficult part is how do you combine then foreign and security interests of the Soviet Union and foreign and security interests of Eastern European countries? And he meant at the time, clearly Poland, Czechoslovakia, and uh, Hungary. And now we have almost the same situation, but now we're talking not about Poland because they're part of NATO. We're talking about Ukraine and Georgia. How can we work to make sure that these countries are stable, secure, and prosperous, especially prosperous? And this is a very hard talk with Russia. And this, of course, you can argue, why has Russia any say in it? Yes, from a legal point of view, absolutely correct. But from the power understanding of realities, they can. They simply can. We like it or we don't. And mm -hmm. right now, we are exactly here. How do we work out a solution, or at least the first step, that Russia doesn't feel threatened? And I pointed out, they have a couple of points. It's not so much NATO enlargement in general. It is if countries become NATO members, clearly at one point, NATO will put NATO military equipment there. Fair enough. You know, when they're members, they can, even though we're kind of cautious, also uh, those uh, member states as Poland. So that is the key question. And to answer also your question, so how can we work with Russia? How can we deter? I think at the moment, we have to do everything to make sure that we don't have a military conflict. The means mm -hmm. is, you know, we can talk about it. Do we send weapons to Ukraine? Ukraine is the 12th largest exporter of arms. You know, they produce arms. They do have arms. And mm -hmm. the question is, is that what we send them enough to deter Russia militarily? And my answer would be no. Mm -hmm. Russia is a superpower concerning military means. Uh, you can deter it only on the highest level, which is, you know, mad. Mutual is short, short destruction, but we are not talking about this, and, and this is good. Yeah, if, if I can just interrupt here, uh, I think the point is not simply that Russia is a military great power or superpower, but um, there is this perception that for Russia, there is no war that would be too expensive, especially what concerns the human cost. And that's the big question. It might be a kind of stereotype that, you know, Russia is perceived as an enormous gas supplier, which is heavily armed. But um, it would be very important that neither Russia perceives itself as such, nor the West only described Russia 
as a heavily armed gas supplier. The question is, you know, what's what's the alternative approach to this? Right. I just wanted to finish this point. That let's say we arm Ukraine further, uh, and then assuming we will have a military confrontation with Russia. Again, the superiority of firepower of Russia is overwhelming. So we have a small war that would be, in that case, I guess, the best. And after, I don't know, eight, seven days, we have a ceasefire. Ukraine will have lost more territory. Maybe more Russian soldiers have died, but still. So then we have another discussion. What to do next? We have a Minsk 3, 4, 5. I don't know. It's not yeah. good for Ukraine. So to mm-hmm. come back to your question, what would be the alternative? The alternative has started. Never in the last decade or two decades have we discussed security policy as intense as right now. It is sad that this is happening with the gun on our head, meaning Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. This is very sad. It should have happened much before. And the main victim of this is Ukraine, which is sad again. We're not talking for dialogue. here. We're talking for serious negotiations. We're also understanding that for the moment, Russia is presenting itself as a foe of us. It's not a strategic partner, clearly, uh, nothing at all. It is a foe. It is, I don't want to use the word enemy, but it's for Ukrainians, that's how it is. We have begun. We have had a very intense diplomatic exchange all over the place. Uh, France is doing this. Germany is doing this. And there was a talk with the Polish uh, president and the French president, the German president, the so-called Weimar Triangle, which is extremely important and very smart to do. Poland has to be part of it. And the next step is, I think, tomorrow, the three Baltic presidents from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania will confer with the German chancellor. Again, extremely important. And not just because I'm sitting here in Riga. In general, the Baltic states are small, but extremely important in this issue. So it is the EU has to get back the initiative. It's not good just to answer to what Russia wants. We also want, as a matter of fact, we can't think we can turn things around. We can say, you know, we also have a catalog. And the catalog starts back, give back Crimea, which seems entirely impossible. But Russia has given us also some really difficult to negotiate ideas about that we go, or NATO goes back to 1997. Okay, let's go with the maximum and have a talk. But we are getting the initiative, which is Mm -hmm. important. I don't know if I'm too wobbly in the answer to avoid a war, but what's happening right now is the right thing. I don't know how many journalists a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago have already said the attack of Russia is imminent. Didn't happen. And I think it didn't happen also because we have this diplomatic super initiative, I would say. Diplomacy on steroids. I'm glad you're highlighting the European role. Because uh, for weeks, there was indeed a perception that we are back into some kind of Cold War plot that you have basically Russia replacing the Soviet Union on one side, and then the United States, it's Geneva again. So it's a process that basically sidelines Europeans and particularly the European uh, Union and the United States is the one which is representing, so to speak, the West, and the West needs to be united. But in your view, what is the actual U.S. role or U.S. interest in this uh, situation? Because uh, you know, just six months ago, uh, the U.S. Um, withdrew from Afghanistan, probably signaling that they have to kind of find new priorities and uh, not necessarily engage in a military way in every single conflict. So what might be their interest, their eminent objective in this region between the Baltic 
and the Black Seas, which is basically the region that separates uh, the European Union from Russia? That is an excellent question. And that's why we have, at least in Germany, I can tell you that, but not only, also in the Baltics, a discussion among us. I'm giving you an example which might be clearly over our heads because this is history and this is giving history its time limits. In 1989 and 1990, we were saying this is the end of a very short 20th century. It started with the Russian Revolution, then we had the Cold War, and in 1989, it's over. You could argue it's over now. Now, in 2020, 2021, it's over because the old scheme of the Cold War doesn't work. Uh, we have more players, more actors. China was not as half as strong as at the time. You can ask why China now? China, because Russia has alternatives in the situation right now. And I'm coming back to the US. I just want to give you the foundation. Uh, during the Cold War, Russia had Europe and they somehow had to come to terms. It was the Yalta peace, which was not good for the Central Eastern European countries. And after this concept of Cold War or post-Cold War is crashing right now. And this is the yes, your question, also because of the US. 2016, I think, was a wake-up call. And I'm not talking about the president itself, but the administration and the party. The grand old party is now, from our perspective, not grand. It's an old party. Mm. At the same time, it becomes a party which is not so much interested in European security. You have a dialogue, you have a conversation in Washington where conservatives saying, um, we shouldn't have this conflict with Russia. Mm -hmm. Not we, the US. Europe should have the conflict, but not the US. So in other words, this strong support, which under the current administration is there. No doubt. I think the president is doing, in terms of European security, a fantastic job. His minister of his state secretary, Blinken, is doing a superb job in terms of diplomacy um, and answering the questions of the Russian government. But this might be over in a couple of years. And in general, I think we're seeing the remaining of the US, which is doing what it has been doing for the last 70 years, which was fantastic. Which was, for Europe, it was a blessing. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear that they will go on. And I think the US is kind of wondering, what are we doing there? Because of NATO, there's no wobbling concerning Article 5 under the Biden administration. But if this will happen in the next administration, it is unclear. So your question is difficult to answer. On the one hand side, yes, of course, the US is with us. But now the US is getting wobbly. And its interest, I think, is to make sure that Russia is not getting an upper hand in Europe and otherwise not that much interest. You know, if Biden sends or the Biden administration sends a couple of thousand troops, that's okay. But if you're really committed, you do something completely different. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. I think the US should do here as little as possible. The crisis is mainly a European crisis. And we, the EU, we have to step up without saying, you know, we are not united with the US. It's, it's a diplomacy within the Western alliance, but it's positive, I would say. It's a wake-up call for the EU, finally, to make sure that we find a solution on our continent. Because for the US, for a couple of congressmen, it's really easy to say, you know, we sent weapons and there's yeah, a little war. It's far away. It's a, it will be a European war. We don't want a European war. We are still troublesome with the 20th century. Having mentioned NATO, I was just wondering whether we should elaborate on this just a little bit, because uh, 
it's um, obviously a very central um, uh, player in uh, the, the, the recent uh, uh, developments. Uh, but there is a bit of ambivalence here, especially if you look at, you know, one week NATO is very, very loud um, as part of the post-war security architecture, a very important continuing piece of the international relations the week after, you hear in the news that um, uh, Sir Stoltenberg is going to head the Central Bank of Norway. At least the timing of this could have been different, because I think it gives an impression of uh, you know the whole approach not being sufficiently serious. But I, I really don't know what to do about this. I agree with you. I mean, I understand. Uh, you know, if you would be in the position of Mr. Stoltenberg and we get a fantastic offer from the respective national bank, it's hard to deny. Um, but on the other hand, you would argue this is the biggest crisis we had for the longest time. And I don't want to sound alarmistic, but the, the news reports are very worrisome. And um, I had talks for the last couple of days in Estonia and in Lithuania, in Latvia, I have them constantly. For these countries, this is worrisome. And then mm-hmm. to be a NATO general secretary, say, oops, you know, I'm going to the central bank. Um, I'm a human being. I want to work in a different field. Fair enough. But maybe there are situations in life where you just cannot do this. You have to stay because you know the organization very well. You are respected. You're working on it and going now. I agree with you. But in general, your question about NATO. NATO has its um, review process of the strategy. They're working on it. It will come out in a couple of months, as far as I understand. The EU is doing the same strategic compass. NATO has to re permanently reassess what to do concerning the security in Europe. And here is also one of the conflict lines with uh, Russia. In the OSC Charter, and later it was confirmed in Lisbon and in Istanbul and in Astana, OSCE is based on the understanding of cooperative security. Now, this sounds, of course, crazy in the situation where we are, saying, you know, how can we cooperate with Russia doesn't really mean that we have to cooperate, but it means that we have a common understanding of indivisible security in Europe. It is, even though if there is a country which threatens still, it's one continent. We will not be able to solve this um, if we continue just banging and supporting theories, or not theories, I'm sorry, foundations we had for the longest time. At the same time, in insecure times, it's, you know, it would be crazy um, to do something, be changing or rearranging NATO. NATO is giving security for those who are in, for Poland, for Romania, for those countries who have very difficult experiences uh, with the Soviet Union. In parenthesis, Germany had that too. We were divided. So it's not like we have no idea, yes. no clue what happened, uh, what, what, what's the matter with, uh, with the Soviet Union. We have an idea. And the US too. I mean, they had the Cuba crisis. Yeah, but that, that was dangerous. I wouldn't always put the Baltics and Poland up front saying they know best. There are many countries who know best with different experience. We have to do it together. So NATO up to now and for the very nearest future is extremely important for us. But we should be honest um, for the future, what are our weaknesses and what are our strengths and how do we see security in 10, 20 years? We can deter Russia for a while, we did containment, but we can only do this if we agree both, I mean, the West and Russia on the status quo and the status quo is kind of okay for both. During the Cold War, it was kind of okay. Now it's not from the Russian side and we cannot discuss this away. We have to deal with this. And I think right now we are dealing with it 
for the, for the first time since many, many years. Uh, one clear sign of not being anymore in the Cold War times, I mean the you know, short uh, uh, 20th century, is the role of China. And you know, geographically, it's uh, distant um, uh, from the conflict we, we are speaking about. But now, you know, we just um, received this joint statement of uh, the Russian and Chinese leadership. Is this just a coincidence? Or you think it's a kind of coordinated move away from the balance of power of the previous times and trying to use this uh, new and, um, and, and boosted relationship to influence the European territory as well? I think China is very much looking inwards for the for the longest time has been, um, but now they're getting stronger too. And they, in general, they like what there is. Uh, they like the international um, economic relations. They're part of WTO. All that is good for them. They profit. Their economic success is possible through globalization. Um, and they profited much more than Russia. What they both detest, and this is nothing new, uh, was the unipolar moment of the US. Because, and this is also an argument which especially Russia puts forward, Russia says, and China, China would follow, the last 30 years, we cannot say that the world has become a secure place. And usually Russia points towards Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, the Middle East. You could argue, well, you, Russia, are part of the problem. True, they are. But it still doesn't mean that we, we cannot take Russia out in terms of, and we cannot influence Russia in terms of, you become a better country and then we work together. It's not working. But Russia has the problem that it is also an in-between state, in-between China and the West. China is a very difficult partner as far as I understand, I'm not a China specialist, but what I read, what I hear also from uh, Chinese experts, it's difficult and that's very confident. So this is not a home game for Russia. And um, as every, it seems to be there are very, very many in-between situations. We are also in between the West and the East. Europe always have been. Um, so this wonderful friendship forever between China and Russia, I'm doubtful. Also, because mm. Russia is very much interested in Asian markets in general. And, you know, China is not very liked in all of Asia, as we all know. So Russia has to balance too. But in this case, in security uh, affairs, they both, as I said, detest this unipolar approach. They want to have a say in norms. If we say a norm-based international order, Russia and China would say, well, these are, these, we're not really part of it. We're not even saying the norms are so much different, they're partly universal, but we're not really in it. And why is that actually? So what, that's why they came up and doing this. But at the same time, the, the main question of yours was towards China. I would be a little bit more skeptical on this wonderful friendship mm -hmm. between Russia and China. Russian experts also point that out. It is a necessity at the moment. It's smart to do from the Russian mm -hmm. side, but they really don't want to be completely dependent on, on China, which they are not at mm -hmm. all. That's also why they're still looking at Europe. And here is also an opportunity. So far, and there's a discussion in Russia, should we break with the West completely? Not to say that they really can't because they're still economically very much involved with the EU, but that's a discussion. I see the point. We are getting close to uh, the time available for this conversation, but I would like you to just briefly elaborate on, um, let's say, the more distant horizon the distant future, because we shouldn't speculate on what happens next week or the next month in this conflict, because there's so many 
uh, unknowns in this story. Um, on the other hand, what we would need to think about is the future of concepts like Eastern neighborhood or a longer term EU-Russia relations. But it would be very unfair to finish the conversation also without a little bit talking about the Ukraine itself, because you know what kind of state it can become in the future. It's a relatively young state. Let's not forget uh, this. You know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine as an independent country was formed, and this statecraft is probably unfinished. And there are many aspects which they might uh, need to do away with, especially if we take uh, the Minsk process uh, seriously. So can you comment on this, let's say, taking into account the possibility of planning ahead, even if we are in this convoluted period? They say predicting uh, international relations concerning Russia is the banana peel. In other words, you always slip. As I said, maybe the 21st century starts right now um, because things are renewed. We have to think beyond the usual, this is how it is, this has been good, and we will continue. And we should not make the mistake concentrating as one does because these are the most important player, actors. Player is not right because this is not a game. The new approach also from the EU, and it's not really new. I mean, we have done this before, but we have to think seriously, is how to bring in the countries in between. Bring in in terms of how can we make a better effort to bring security, stability, and prosperity. You can argue... Well, you know, these are easy words, but how to do it? It's hard to say. It needs an effort from everybody. It needs an effort from Russia. It needs an effort from also from Ukraine and Georgia. It needs an effort from the EU with them together. And I think the big word is compromise. Um, we will not solve this problem if we all stay on our positions. And, and this might be, this might have the sound of, aha, Russia puts uh, troops on the Ukrainian border. And now we are kind of wobbly. We are wobbly and we kind of gives them some, uh, some, uh, compromise on a very low level, better for them, worse for us. That's not the case. That's what I'm saying. We shouldn't too much emphasize dialogue. These are tough negotiations. And a couple of months ago, I would say that the status quo was good for everybody, for Russia, for the US, not for Ukraine so much clearly, but somehow even for Ukraine, because there was a lot of attention, um, which they needed uh, to get the support from the EU and so on and so forth. The status quo is not good anymore. For the first time, Russia made the move. And I think we should also understand the status quo is not good. What are we willing to do? How ambitious are we? And here, if you don't mind, I understand the time is short. And we should also, if you don't mind, um, bring in a social democratic approach, which is we have interests in stability and security, but we can be tough. We can be very tough on cyber. We have the technicians, we have the heads, the minds. And Russia should not think that we are kind of weak and kind of just want to talk a little bit. No, no. The EU can be very tough. We have friends still in our union. Um, so we have to do the deterrence talk. What and how can the EU deter without taking them from NATO? This has to be combined. We can be tough. But on the other hand side, we also have our history that we will do everything to solve this in a diplomatic way, but not giving away everything what we have. I think this is extremely important. And the second and third is for social democrats. It is the combination of stability, security, prosperity, and environment. It's the whole thing. If we have a war in Ukraine, you can forget everything. We cannot allow this. And the third one is human rights. This is the basis for social democrats. And we should continue 
praising human rights as much as we can. We should think about a human rights uh, strategy which is useful and consistent because this is something which we're always criticized of. We're not consistent. This together is hard work. And here is one difference between the US, I think, and in Europe in general. We still believe in detente. We still believe that diplomacy is not useless. Right now, the Biden administration is going along with this, as I said, fantastically. But in general, the US, the US is very, very doubtful of this kind of approach, of the approach of restraint. Mm. You know, we have differences in an alliance, which is fair, but we should make our European EU point very, very clear. And this is what I wish for the next five, ten years to 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 work on this, to move on this, and to make it a priority. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this uh, conclusion. If I may, I would like to connect um, our conversation with um, a cultural aspect because the public debate, the widespread uh, you know general understanding of international conflict is also influenced by what people uh, watch uh, in uh, TV or cinema. And um, there is now another coincidence, which I would highlight, is the release of the movie about Munich, the negotiations uh, between Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler, as we know it very well, which resulted in uh, the annexation of Czechoslovakia and uh, the prelude to World War II, as um, uh, we all remember. Uh, And that obviously is connected with the very, very strong categorical and unambiguous criticism of appeasement as um, uh, a concept. And one might have the feeling that since this is now a movie a lot of people are watching, then it's not it's it's not necessarily lucky uh, coincidence because in a way the commitment to peace and development and human rights and economic cooperation can be conflated with a kind of irresponsible approach to great powers and the militaries that they represent. Uh, would you recommend another cinema, another movie, maybe not instead of Munich, but alongside Munich, to, to have a more complex picture about the current situation? Yeah, you're right. It's interesting that Munich comes up again and again. It's a shame that appeasement in general has a very bad connotation. I, re- I Yeah, that's a tough question. But I recently I saw an American movie from 1962. It's called To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a classic. Um, I recommend it. It's not entirely about war and peace, but it's about a lynch mob which tries to be aggressive against an Afro-American um, in town. It's in the rural south of the United States in 62, and somehow they manage to defuse the tension. It's a far call to compare Munich with this kind of movie, but the movie is about courage. And I think. That's what the EU needs, a lot of courage to confront what we have, to be courageous, to look for ways out, to make sure, and this sounds maybe very emotional, to make sure that countries like Ukraine have the possibility to develop, as I said before, stable, secure, and prosperous. And a war would be completely wrong. So it's the it's the way of being courageous, being open, being willing to negotiate with all the power the EU has. That's that would be my advice. Killing to kill a mockingbird is a is a US classic, not in this circumstances, I understand, but I recommend that movie. 
even in the city. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Reinhard Krum. Thank you so much for um, the time you spent uh, with our listeners for the analysis and also for this uh, recommendation. I believe we will be watching together how if developments unfold in the coming uh, period. And if necessary, uh, time and again, we can come back uh, to analyzing the relations, including uh, the security questions of Eastern Europe and the relations between uh, the European Union and its eastern neighbors. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>